Hello, thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and joining me today, Chad. How's it going, Chad? Hey, it's going good, Al. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. And today, you know, we we haven't really talked about movies in a while. I mean, we we talked a little bit about uh, movies when we were discussing, um, you know, the Satanic Panic, because, you know, we talked about the, uh, uh, you know, we talked about uh, the Tom Hanks movie, Mazes and Monsters. Oh, yes. But Nothing I iconic think... about that, though. Pardon? <laughs> Nothing iconic about that. Yes, exactly. So today's topic is iconic film scenes. And when we were, when I was doing some research to try to put together ideas for this show, I couldn't really find a definition of what makes a film scene iconic. Now, in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, according to that, iconic is defined as one, of relating to or having the characteristics of an icon, and two, a widely recognized and well-established, such as an iconic brand name, and b, widely known and acknowledged, especially for distinctive excellence, like an iconic writer or a region's iconic wines. And, you know, in a way in D&D, uh, I, I know in D&D and I think Pathfinder, didn't they have some like iconic characters like in the... Uh, like the player's handbook, there was a picture of like a halfling thief or, you know, like an elf uh, fighter that... Pathfinder did a, um, oh, what would you call it? Uh, in their NPC codex, they standed out all the iconic uh, characters. And, and by iconic characters, of course, anybody that role plays knows what I'm talking about. They are the the picture or the... Um, the character that's drawn to represent a class in the uh, player's handbook or any other of the, you know, million splat books that are out there. So that's, that's when we're talking about that kind of stuff. That's what I mean by iconic. Yeah. And cause I, the ones I remember from third 3.5, I know there's the half lean thief, Lilia, I think, and Ember the monk. And then they had one for, uh, I know the human fighter and the dwarven fighter and an elven ranger. So, and I think you could really say that even each of the various Dungeons and Dragons game worlds, like obviously Forgotten Realms, who who's the iconic character you're probably going to think of when you talk about the Forgotten Realms? Well, I know who I'm going to think about. I'm going to think about Elminster. Hey, same here. So, yeah, usually you're going to think of some of the more popular characters that have been very well defined and written about in the various uh, books that have gone along with the, you know, the game world. Like, yeah, Elminster or Dristu Orden would probably be the main ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, Bolo. See, the Finderstone trilogy, I mean, there were some real memorable characters in there like Alias, Dragon Bait. Uh, Oliver Skettle. Right now, would you would you say a iconic character could uh, kind of pile over in a in a in a gaming sense to a group like the Red Wizards of Thay? Yeah, I mean, I could see that because in, in a lot of the fantasy literature I've read, it's not unusual to have that antagonistic group. Like you mentioned, the Red Wizards or. In uh, Dragonlance, during the War of the Lance, you had the dragon armies. Okay, yeah. Or anything 
any anything where there's a kender involved. Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. And now have you ever read a lot of the uh have you ever read much of the Dragonlance uh series or is that something that you really got into? No, Dragonlance was not one of them. I've read a lot of um see I'm a I'm a junkie for the Forgotten Realms or Faerun or whatever. You know whatever incantation of it is. Um so the Ed Greenwood stuff. Um I've read a lot. I've read the Elminster series of books. Um I've read a lot of the uh the uh different Forgotten Realms novels. Yeah, I've I, I've read a, a few of the Dragonlance books. I mean the War of the Lance books, you know, the uh the you know Chronicles trilogy, the and then Oh, I keep forgetting the name of it because the I know there was the series that came after the original trilogy, and I've read a few of the character books because you know they had the meetings books where they talked about what some of these main characters like Tasselhoff and Tannis Half Elven and Flint Fireforge, you know what they were doing before the Dragons of Autumn Twilight began. Okay, so I mean I think there's definitely some iconic ones in there. I, I mean, come on. I, I think most of the people who've read Dragonlance probably like Tass. I mean, I'm sure there's there's a few tad, Tasselhoff Burfoot haters out there, but I like him. He was one of my favorite characters in the book. Okay. Yeah, and, and that that's kind of the thing with Elminster. I always liked about Elminster was the fact that he was this powerful wizard, but he didn't like people. <laughs> Yeah, I remember they were saying, and I think it was one of the Forgotten Realms books, or I, I think they even mentioned it in one of the novels, there was a sign outside of his tower that said, you know, no trespassing, trespass, violators of this rule should notify next of kin. Yeah, yeah, he, he had no time for people most of the time. And I think he actually had like a 16, 17, or 18 charisma. So despite not being a people person, he could probably really kind of talk you into doing what uh, he wanted you to do. Yeah, and I even like the fact that um, in some of the later novels, he actually uh, got into time travel. And Elminster's favorite drink um, is Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah, because uh, Dragon Magazine, they had the Wizards 3 where uh, Mordenkainen, though I never really got much into the Greyhawk setting, uh, and then, you know, of course, Elements are there, and I think the other one, Declude, uh, was it Dolomar, uh, Raceland's Apprentice? Yeah, I could. I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with what you're talking about, but... Okay, yeah, it wasn't a book. It was It was a series of articles that they had Dragon Magazine back in the day, so... But I'm sure we could go on and on for talking about, okay, what makes a particular character in fantasy literature, you know, what makes that, like, you know, what makes Elminster so iconic, what makes Conan the Barbarian so iconic. But that's not really what we're going to talk about today as we're going to be talking about movies. And to get kind of back on track, as I said, I wasn't really able to find anything that says, okay, here's a group of people who are experts in movies or, you know, film critics, here's how they define an iconic scene. So let's, let's kind of make our own definition here. How would you define an iconic movie scene? An iconic movie scene to me is it's that scene within a movie. And I think um, if we really break it down to its, to its smallest parts, every movie has an iconic scene in it. Now, that being the scene that sticks with you. I mean, I've watched a lot of movies 
And every movie, there's there's something I would say in just about every movie, if you think about it, that that grabs you. You know, that that's that scene that you keep going back to. Um, the thing that I think makes it iconic, though, as a movie scene is it's not only you it sticks with. You know, it sticks with the subconscious of mankind kind of thing. You know, if I say to you, Al, what's the iconic scene in Home Alone? Probably the one where he puts his hands on his uh, Macaulay Culkin's character. He puts his hands on his cheek after putting the aftershave on. Yep. And he goes, ah! Right. Exactly. So that's the iconic scene. That's the one that I'm guessing if we ask 100 people, 80 or more of them, that's going to be the scene. Okay? Because when, when, you, when you brought the topic to me and you said, let's do iconic movie scenes, I'm, that was one of the first ones that popped into my head. There was that one. There was the one from um, uh, Shawshank Redemption where he climbs out of the tube, you know, and it's raining and he stands up and he's getting rained on, you know, like when he makes it to freedom kind of thing. To me, that's the iconic scene from that movie. No, I think you uh, hit the nail on the head there with that when you're talking about something that really defines or stands out in the film. And when you start talking about you know, movies where it's not just a single movie, but there's a sequel or maybe there's a trilogy. I think there sometimes can even be, of course, each movie is going to have its iconic scene, but I think there can sometimes be an iconic scene that really defines a trilogy or a a series of movies. And we'll certainly talk about that. And I remember that scene you were talking about in Shawshank Redemption, where how did Morgan Freeman's voiceover put it? Something like he, you know, crawled through a river of and came out smelling like a rose. Yeah, something like that. But, you know, it's not even the words in most cases. Like, um, another one that popped to my head is, have you ever seen A Clockwork Orange? Yes, I have. And, and it's just that picture of the of the main guy, um, and I can't remember his Alex. name. Alex. Standing there with his bowler hat on, with it kind of, you know, pointed down, and he's kind of looking out from underneath it. I can't remember where in the movie that is, can't remember what it has to do with the movie, but when I think of that, it's right in the beginning. What's that? It's right in the beginning. Okay. But that's the scene that, you know, you show that to somebody, they're going to go, Oh, clockwork orange. Exactly. And I think another thing that can really help define what's considered iconic. And we, you hinted at this a little bit where if it's a, a scene that sticks into, you know, our cell, our consciousness, and sometimes we see it either parodied, parodied or referred to in other movies. Yeah. Like, okay, I don't – now when you're talking about A Clockwork Orange, I don't think I've seen the, you know, the look of Alex, uh, you know, Malcolm McDonald standing there staring at the camera and he's got his white suit with the bowler hat and the little makeup around the eye. I mean, I can't think of anything specifically that parodied that scene. I know in one of the Simpsons Treehouse of Horrors, that's how Bart was dressed. Okay. But um, I'm trying to think. Like I said, I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll... Oh, yeah, good example. And there's a website that I looked up, and if you guys want to follow along with some of the scenes here, uh, fire up your web browser of choice and go to filmsite.org backslash iconicfilmscenes.html. And one of the ones they mention in there is at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana Jones, he's got the, you know, that, that idol he's trying to pick up. And he's got that bag, and he's going to try to, you know, swap it out. And 
you know, you see that period in things every now and then. The big one I can remember is, have you ever seen Weird Al Yankovic's movie UHF? Yes, I love that. When he's having his, yeah, because he's having, uh, Weird Al's having his dream sequence at the start of the movie. And he's like, you know, he's sitting there, he's bouncing the the bag of, of rocks or whatever in his hand. And he's like, ah, screw it. He then just throws the bag, grabs the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the statue, and then it begins the boulder chase parody. So that's one example I can think of. Another one on that list is E.T. and Elliot when they're bike riding into the, with the moon in the background. Mm -hmm. So that's another one of those scenes that you see appear every now and then uh, either parried, uh, parried, parodied, um, homaged or, well, I guess we could say sometimes people rip it off, but we're not going to go there right, right now. Well, you know, it's like, as I'm looking over this list, actually, I'm looking here and I see uh, Bo Derek slow motion beach jog in Perfect 10 or in 10 or whatever it was called. Yep. You know, that, right away, that brings me to uh, Baywatch. You know, it was definitely oh, yeah. done in, in an homage type way, but they did it all the time on Baywatch. Yep. And another thing that I think, and again, you mentioned this too, is in a way we all kind of have to, you know, each of us is going to have our own definition of what we consider an iconic scene. I mean, like when we talk about uh, like Indiana Jones, because I've never seen, um, I mean, I've never seen the, you know, 10, but when you talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, probably one of the iconic scenes for me in that movie is when Indiana's in the you know, in the marketplace, and this is a little bit of an interesting bit of film lore, is, you know, there's that swordsman, he's swinging around the sword, acting all tough and stuff, and then Indiana just kind of like, it's like, I don't have time for this crap, and pulls out his gun and shoots the guy. Right. And yeah. again, a little bit of film lore, uh, I'm sure this is fairly well known, but that was actually kind of an uh, last minute addition to the film because originally there was this big long fight scene that was supposed to take place, but Harrison Ford was sick. And, you know, so he really didn't feel like doing a, you know, this big physical fight scene. So he's like, can I just pull out my gun and shoot the guy? Yeah. And, and, and a stroke of brilliance, you know, George Lucas went, yeah, that's going to work. Right. So let's uh, go back to the beginning of this list. And we're going to talk about some of these scenes. Now, I have not seen all of these movies. And we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. It's like some of these movies we've seen, some of them we've only seen part of. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and then there's others that maybe we're, we've, we've heard of the movie and we're familiar with it. But, you know, we have maybe not actually see the movie. So now the first scene they have listed is the birth of cinema in and i cannot speak french do you have that page up right now i do yeah i was gonna say if uh anyone out there is from france or speaks french i apologize i probably would have mispronounced that horribly I, I and four years of french in high school but as we all know high school was a long time ago <laughs> yeah and there's two of them they have in there from the late 1800s. Um, the other one, the second one they have there is the shocking very first film kiss. And I remember seeing that on a on a documentary. And it's it, the most awkward I, looking kiss ever. <laughs> yeah, and you know, 
you could probably YouTube it, but it's a scene. There's a fully dressed man and a fully dressed woman. And it's like the man's like whispering over something in the woman's ear and then kisses her on the cheek. And that was considered really controversial back then. Well, yeah. I mean, public displays of affection were controversial. Exactly. You know, if you did anything more than hold hands and then only most likely if you were engaged, would you even do that? It was, it was shocking. Yeah, and now moving on a little bit, uh, there's only two that they have that are mentioned in the 19, early 1900s, so we'll kind of break this down by decade here, and obviously as, you know, way back then, of course, there weren't as many movies, so I think they have less to work with when they made this article, but one of them that I like is the rocket ship striking the face in La Voyage dans la Lune, Yep. which, again, a French fit. Yep. A French film, you know, A Trip to the Moon. And, you know, again, you can probably see it on YouTube, but this was one of the first attempts to put science fiction into film. So I think it's very noteworthy because, you know, this is a time when science fiction as we know it was still very much in its infancy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, of course, there were people that, you know, did speculate that maybe it would be possible to send people to the moon one day. But, you know, of course, since the only thing we could really tell about the moon is what you could see through a telescope, there really wasn't, you know, people had all sorts of weird ideas about what could be up there before we found out, ah, it's just a bunch of rocks and dust. I, I think uh, I think my favorite theory I ever heard is that it was made out of green cheese. Yep. <laughs> Now, the next one, have you seen The Great Train Robbery? I have not. I, I have. It's an interesting movie. Um, but the fact that he lowered his gun and shot at the camera, which we see all the time these days, was was a big invention of, you know, filming. So, I mean, that to me is an iconic scene because I'm sure you know the scene even if you don't know the movie. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering if there were people back at that time since, I mean, I'm not, they probably used some kind of blank. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there were people that thought, did he shoot a real bullet? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure they were, you know, and, and still to the day, well, to this day, the way they can make, you know, they can shoot at a camera and you can watch a bullet coming out of the gun and you realize in the back of your head that it's, you know, whatever, it's CGI, it's trick photography, whatever you want to call it. But it's still, there's that, there's that, you know, that lizard part of your brain that goes, somebody's shooting at me. And, oh yeah, I mean, I'm sure that the people who thought the kiss was controversial and freaked out about that, oh, I would love to see them see that scene. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, moving on, and the 1920s actually gives, there's a quite a bit more here. Uh, Now, you had mentioned Nosferatu, the 1922 German film. Yes, with uh, Count... Orlock. I actually own this movie. Unfortunately, the version I have of it does not have the original music. It has some hardcore uh, German uh, punk type music over it. So I actually just watch it with the sound off. Um, But it's a great it's a great early vampire movie. And if anybody knows me, they know I'm kind of into vampires and that kind of stuff. Um, to the, the macabre stuff. So 
it's kind of neat. Um, you and I had talked about this one other time about how vampires are portrayed and that kind of stuff. So this 1922 movie, which came out a few years after Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula book, which I believe came out in like 1904, 1907, something like that, where Dracula could walk in the daylight. However, in this movie, um, the way the movie actually ends is he's stalking this woman through and walks in the beam of sunlight and he just poof goes away. Yeah. And I know we can, I will maybe, maybe next Halloween we'll do an entire, uh, episode on, on vampires, but yeah. And one of the ones from this period that really, that caught my eye was the transform Maria robot. And that's from Metropolis, another early German film. And that I've only seen part of that movie. So, I mean, I've still, I mean, I, I can see how that a lot of stuff in that movie would be considered iconic, mainly because, you know, again, since films were still, you know, cinema as an art form was still very much in its infancy. So I'm sure there were people back then that saw some of the special effects in, you know, Metropolis and were probably like blown away. Like, why did they do that? Right, right. Or how did they do that? Not why did they do that? Uh, how did they do that? Oh, I'm sure there were some out there that also said, why did they do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and the, the other one that I, I, from this list from the 20s, is the house collapse on Buster Keaton in Steamboat Bill Jr. And this is another one of those scenes where I think a lot of us have probably seen a clip of it. Right. So you probably have, you probably know it, even though if you haven't seen the movie. And that was another one of those film scenes where there was a great deal of risk because they obviously you're going to be dropping a, a house frame on someone. You got to make sure that person is in just the right position. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, otherwise, I mean, uh, Buster Keaton didn't live that long, but uh, he would have lived less amount of time. Yep. And once we get into the 30s, one of the you know things we see there is we see a couple of the monster movies that are pictured there, like Frankenstein and King Kong. Yeah, yeah. And I have not seen either of the originals. I've seen clips. I've seen bits and pieces. But I've never actually sat down and watched either of the originals. And I'm just looking at this picture of King Kong and going, holy crap, that's cheesy. Yeah, and, and but of course back then in the 30s that would have been like wow because yeah how they get you know I mean do that yeah I mean nowadays of course everything is, would just be CGI'd but this is when they had to do the stop animation and you, you know that's uh, you know I mean I love those old movies with the stop animation monsters right. I mean yeah I I know they don't look realistic but you really got to look back and appreciate what they were able to do back then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that they could convince people that this monkey was not only climbing up the you know, Empire State Building, but taking Fay Ray with them. Yep, and swatting down the planes as well. Oh, yeah, the, the planes, yep. Uh, there was an, one of the other movies from the 30s there that I, you know, I, I think, you know, definitely deserves a lot of, if it's, uh, you know, its reputation as having iconic scenes is The Wizard of Oz from 1939. Yes. Now, in that movie, or in that um, 
in the the article here, they say that the Ruby Slippers segment, that's what they put as the defining iconic scene in that movie. So what would you think is the defining scene in that particular movie? Oh, there's a couple. To me, it's kind of a toss-up. The first one is the arrival of Glinda. Because the fact that they made this, you know, they kind of did this fade with this bubble, and I'm not even sure how they did it. You know, considering you can look at the the stage where it was done, and you can see where, you know, the back walls are, and it just yep. like it goes further, you know? But then they did this amazing shimmering bubble, you know, came in the frame, and it got bigger, and it came down, and it landed, and then it just kind of faded into Glinda the Good Witch. which. At this point, no big deal. I think I could probably figure out how to do that on my phone. But in 1939, I mean, that, that was something. And I think the other, one, the other place that I uh, think is iconic is um, that original, that, that, that first scene where they walk into the, uh, the wizard's antechamber, I guess, for lack of a better word, and the fire's going and the smoke and they've got the projected face up on the wall. I mean, you know, for the time and for the fact that they were doing this in color and all these other things, I thought, I mean, to this day, it still kind of impresses me. For me, the scene that really hits me in Wizard of Oz is when, you know, the first part of the film when she's in Kansas, it's all in black and white. And then when she opens the door to the, the Magic Kingdom, every or not the Magic Kingdom, to you know Oz, everything's in color. Yep, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think that the reason that one really hits for me is because it really, you know, it really pictures that you know feeling that she would have had. Because I think doesn't it take place in like the Great Depression? Um, during the Dust Bowl, yeah. So yeah, during the Great Depression. So again, it just kind of really shows how, you know, at the the people that were living in Kansas at that time and were in the situations that uh that Dor that Dorothy was, you know, that's kind of what life was like, kind of gray and drab and depressing, and then all of a sudden she you know, Dorothy is whisked away to this, you know, land of color and enchantment. So that's a scene that really st- stuck with me for that one. You know, and 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 Honestly, Wizard of Oz is one of those enigmas of history because when it debuted, it flopped. It was really? not well received. Hmm. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it was up against Gone with the Wind. They came out in the same year. Uh, two, it was done during the Great Depression. I mean, we were starting to come out of it, but so a lot of people didn't go see movies. And it just, it just didn't have traction. It wasn't until the 50s, really, when they started showing it on TV that it really started to become a staple of people. I remember when I first heard about it back when I was in kindergarten, because I, I think our teacher mentioned something about it uh, being you know, on TV that night. Right. And at that time, my family had a black and white TV. Oh, okay. So I had heard about how you know, it went from being black and white to color. And I was like, well, my family has a black and white TV. Does that mean when we get it, it's going to be in color too? <laughs> no, but, um, <laughs> well, you're a little disappointed. yeah, but I still like the movie and, and, you know, it, 
Wizard of Oz is just one of those other interesting movies where there's a certain amount of folklore behind it. Like there's this, you know, this urban legend that one of the munchkins during the, you know, the off to see the wizard scene was shown hanging from a tree in the background. And one of the other, one of the other urban legends, have you ever heard of, uh, some people call it the wizard of Floyd. Other people call it the dark side of Oz. Oh, where if you play the dark side of the moon record at the same time you start the movie or at a certain place in the movie, it all matches up perfectly. I think I Snopes.com uh, had an article about it where they talk about how, yeah, there's people, they debate about, okay, when should you start it? Like, okay, if you're using this version of the album, you should start it when, you know, the lion roars after the third time. And yeah, I, I've never tried that, but I don't know, maybe one of these days I, I will. I don't think I've ever been high enough to try that, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on to the 40s and... With the uh, the movies that were released here, the only one that I've really seen is It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, and I was hoping that we were going to talk about, about that one. One of my favorite Christmas movies of all time. Yeah, and you know, and and it's a good movie, and I, I think one of the reasons that it's so popular that a lot of people like it is, I think all of us have gone through. I, I don't remember the name of the main character there, but. I think all of us have been through that one situation in life where we, you know, sadly kind of wonder, would everyone I know, would they be better off if I was dead or if I was never born? And speaking from experience as someone who has suffered from severe depression, that kind of really hits home for me there. And, you know, and now, of course, in real life, we can't do that. But, you know, of course, in the movie world, you know, he, he was fortunate because he kind of got to see that what would happen. And he realized that, okay, if he had never been born, you know, this would have happened and, you know, this would have happened. And, you and know, really these... nobody, nobody that he, nobody's life that he touched would have been better off without him. Yep. So yeah, it's a very touching movie. And uh, again, it's, if you haven't seen, it's a wonderful life, get a chance to, you know, definitely take a look if you have a, if you haven't seen it yet. And what would you say is probably the most iconic scene in that movie? I think they nailed it on this list that, that, that end of the movie where he's reunited and, and everybody knows he exists again. And I, you know, that, that whole thing. Now I'm not a crier usually, (laughs) but that scene gets to me. And I think it gets to me because I have a family, you know, when I was younger, it never got to me, but, as I get older, either either I'm becoming softer or it's, you know, just because of the fact that I've got a family and, you know, it's kind of the way it is, <laughs> you know, and it kind of just touches that 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 part of you that goes, you know, wow, you know, it kind of strikes home, I guess, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I always love that line in there where the, you know, the bells ringing and the little girl, you know, the little girl. Yeah, it's like, you know, every time when a bell rings, it means an angel got his wings. And, you know, of course, what was the angel's name? Clarence, Clarence. I think. Clarence, yeah. Yeah. Where, again, he was explaining that he was trying to get his wings. So he had to, you know, really kind of, you know, show him the impact that he had. And that's how he got his wings. So moving on to the 50s. So there are several movies listed here. Uh, The ones I've seen on this list. 
Um, I've seen Rear Window. I've seen Lady and the Tramp. Um, now, the Rear Window, I don't know. It was an okay movie, but I'm not sure I would really consider anything in that movie really iconic, but that's just my opinion. Okay. Now, I'm looking at the 50s here, too. Um, I have seen Singing in the Rain. Um, I've seen The Seven Year Rich. I've seen Lady and the Tramp. And I yep, think the searchers, I've seen that one, uh, bridge on the river Kwai. Um, as you can tell, I'm really, I was really excited about that. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, ben Hur. I've seen that one. I have not um, seen Ben Hur. So, Ten um, commandments. I've seen that one, uh, North by Northwest. Yeah. And so of, I, since there's a lot of movies in there, I mean, I think one of them, like with the, during the 10 commandments, they mentioned the Moses parting the Red Sea. And I, I think probably one of the reasons that so many people would have found that iconic is just the, you know, the special effects that would have been involved. And, you know, so I think when that case of the, it's been a while since I've seen the 10 commandments, but you know, again, I'm sure with a lot of the moviegoers at that time, they probably would have thought that would be quite amazing. Whereas of course, nowadays they'd be like, ah, they would have CG'd it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, nowadays, you know, I always say if I can do it on my phone, it's not that impressive. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 one that I, I keep going back to Lady and the Tramp that that spaghetti scene you know um, where they're like they're both eating the plate of spaghetti and they get the one super gigantic long piece of spaghetti and they eat it down and then they kiss you know and then uh, Tramp gives Lady the extra meatball kind of thing you know it's just one of those cute funzy feeling kind of things. So have you and your wife ever tried to reenact that scene? Yes. Oh, but oh, I didn't that's really romantic. Meatball because I'm fat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never tried to reenact. My wife and I never tried to reenact that scene. So, uh, and then, and then I think another one that would be a miss if we didn't talk about it a little bit is the Seven Year Itch and Marilyn Marilyn Monroe's dress above the subway grating where it flies up and you get a quick glance of her panties and then she pushes it down kind of thing. Yeah. You know, the people who were complaining about that, one of the first movies we talked about the kiss, I would love to have, I would love to go back in time and show them seven year itch and see what they thought of that scene. Well, you know, and here's the funny part compared to today to what we see just on regular basic cable. It was nothing. I mean, it wasn't like she was, you know, she didn't have a thong on or anything like, I mean, she had a nice pair of sensible cotton panties on kind of thing, you know? And, and I mean, people watch it now and they're like, Oh, you know, whatever. Big deal. But in the fifties, man, I mean, this was a movie. I don't know if it actually got, um, Oh, what's the word they called it when you couldn't show it? Uh, uh, banned? Yeah, I don't know if it actually got banned or not, but I know it was talked about banning it because of that scene. And now we're like, whatever. Exactly. And I, I know that's one of those things where even if you never seen Seven Year Itch, you probably recognize that specific well, scene. Well, it's a Snickers commercial now. With, yep, exactly. Uh, oh, who the hell is it? It's that, oh, that really ugly guy. And I hate him ugly, to... but... Um, Oh, what is his name? Uh, Steve Buscemi. Isn't it? It's okay. Steve Buscemi, and he's in that dress. Oh, yeah. And he's, like, standing on top of the grate, and he's getting all irritated and stuff. And they're like, 
eat a Snickers. And he's like, why? And they're just like, because you're cranky. And he eats a Snickers, and then it's Marilyn Monroe. And uh, they they stick a little line in there uh, from the movie, and it's just like, it's. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, and um, the one of Ethan Edwards, uh, which is played by John Wayne, when he's framed in the dark doorway in The Searchers, I mean, I can see that, because um, I remember for a, a class, I remember watching um, The Searchers as part of, as one of the assignments, and that's actually a really good movie, so I'd recommend it if you have a chance to check it out. I recommend and one just of the, about anything John Wayne. Actually, I think that's the only John Wayne movie I've ever seen. Really? I think so. I mean, I may have seen like one or two others, but that's the only one that really comes to mind. And I'll make you a list. Remember- I'll make you a list of John Wayne movies. <laughs> yeah, okay. there are some really- maybe one well, of these days we'll you know. Let me ask you this: Are you into westerns? Do you like westerns? They're okay. I mean, so-so. Yeah, because I'm not not a hardcore western guy. I'm not a big I'm not a big John Wayne fan for his war movies. Um, even though the uh, Iwo Jima was a pretty good movie, um, but I really like his Western stuff. And see, I'm a big Western guy. I, I like Westerns. Yeah, and because uh, one of the things I remember about The Searchers is the film we watched before that was Star Wars. So um, one of the things that the, the professor for that class had us do is kind of make some of the comparisons between The Searchers and Star Wars. And like one of the things that, you know, he really pointed out in the movie is in both of them, you've got kind of this, you know, cranky, grumpy, you know, grizzled old vet who really only kind of cares for himself. And he's paired off with this more young, naive, inexperienced, um, you know, well, not really a child or young adult, but this young and inexperienced character who, you know, as they're going out on their journey. So it's supposed to draw parallels between, you know, Ethan Edwards and I forgot the name of the the younger co-star, but between that and with how Han and Luke acted um, in the, the first movie. Okay. So moving ahead to the 60s. So from going by here, the... The one that really stands out for me among the 60s is, well, there's a couple, uh, probably Psycho. You know, of Absolutely. course, a lot of people have, yep. Um, Dr. Strangelove. I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen a couple of the scenes. And I, I think I talked about that movie a little bit. Yeah, when I did my episode on on the Cold, on Cold War campaigning. Right. That right. was one of the movies I mentioned because it actually took a more lighthearted uh, you know, lighthearted, comical look at the Cold War and nuclear annihilation. Yeah, well, now, you know, Dr. Strangelove, I have tried to watch that movie a couple times, and I get about a half hour in, and I'm just lost. <laughs> so, yeah, and I have a feeling that probably the, you know, Kong, Major Kong writing the, you know, the bomb while, you know, whooping and hollering and stuff, that's probably probably the best scene in the movie. See, Seduction of Benjamin, framed by Miss Robinson in The Graduate. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I have not seen The Graduate. It is on my list of ones to watch, but I have not seen it. Yeah, it's kind of a slow-moving film. I mean, it's okay, and that scene's the one where... Uh, this is one where you see homaged in uh, TV shows and stuff every now and then, where you've got an older you know, an older woman trying to seduce a younger man, and here, there's that famous line, Mrs. Robinson, are you trying to seduce me? <laughs> Right. Uh, the uh, the Sound of Music. 
They have that in there, 1965, The Sound of Music. Now, what they have is the iconic scene is where she's, uh, it's before she's become a nun, but she's trying to become a nun. She's a, she's an acolyte or whatever they call them. And she's out in the hills and she's singing the song, you know, The Hills Are Alive with The Sound of Music, that classic song. But to me, that's not the iconic scene. To me, the iconic scene is um, actually the wedding scene where Julia Andrews, who is an absolutely beautiful woman, um, and she still is to this day. I mean, for, for a 70-something, she's she's pretty good looking. But where she's in that big, long dress, you know, with the long, flowing um, trail, uh, what do they call it, uh, trailer, uh, uh, whatever, you know. Uh, drawing a blank. Yeah, um, I'm not too big into women's dresses and what they call the different pieces. But, um, you know, and I just think that, to me, that's the iconic scene or the scene where they're hiding in the graveyard and Rolf's running around with his little uh, Nazi gun out, you know? Okay, I haven't, I've only seen part of uh, Sound of Music. Really? Uh, the, yeah, the one I always remember is where the major blows the whistle and, you know, introduces the kids. And I I know they parodied that in Family Guy one time. Okay. See, um, of course, the the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, Clint Eastwood. You know, I have not much of a Clint Eastwood guy. So, I mean, I think I've only seen a couple of his films. Um, the, the other one that really sticks out for me is Planet of the Apes. Oh, yes. Which I can think of just off the top of my head was parodied in uh, that that scene with the Statue of Liberty was parodied in uh, 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 Kevin Smith's movie, um, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Yep. Yeah, where they, yeah, they steal. Yep. (laughs) So that one's, that's another one of those famous scenes that, you know, makes its way into pop culture every now and then. And, you know, I think since that was still in the Cold War, you know, I think it really resonated with some of the audience at that time because, of course, during the Cold War, it was very common to see, you know, films depicting the annihilation of the human race. And, you know, for most of the movie, you know, these astronauts, well, for, you know, they think that they're on another planet. But then when they finally see, when Charlton Heston's character finally sees the blown up Statue of Liberty, you know, that's when he finally realizes, you know, that you know, no, he's on his planet in the future. So let's take a side quest for a second. Did you see the remake of Planet of the Apes with Mark Wahlberg? No. Okay. I I didn't because, um, to be honest with you, I wasn't much of a fan of the original, and I'm not much of a fan of Mark Wahlberg. Okay. So so I never did watch it. Okay. Well, won't go there then because, yeah, it's – the ending and that's different. Of course, I know anytime they remake a movie that's considered classic, someone's going to complain about it. <laughs> and, and in this case, would it be you? I don't know. There were some things I liked about the, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen both of them, but there's some things I like better about the original. There's some things I like better about the remake, but I'd have to say I kind of like the ending of the the original one better than the the remake. Okay. So now we move into the 70s, and there are some really good movies listed in here. Uh, Clockwork Orange that we talked a little bit about. But let's talk uh, about... Young Frankenstein. I have not seen that one. Are you kidding me? 
I see. I you didn't even no. have to put a beep in there. I just did it for you. <laughs> I am not kidding you. I I have not seen Young Frankenstein. Okay, Al. I should. Al, you need to see Young Frankenstein. Okay, I'll I'll put it on my list of movies I need to rent or check out sometime. Um, but yeah, they've got a really a lot of really good ones that they have listed in the seventies: Clockwork Orange, Dirty Harry, The Godfather, um, Rocky, of course, Jaws. Yeah. Um, they, I'm surprised they didn't list the original Star Wars in there. Yeah, they they did episode five in the eighties, but they didn't do episode four. I'm surprised too. But are there any? What would you consider the iconic scene out of there, other than the Death Star being blown up? Hmm. In the original, that's hard to say because I think there's a lot of really good scenes in there. I would probably have to say the iconic scene for me is right before the Death Star is destroyed, where you know you where you know Luke's flying down the trench and you hear you know Obi Wan you know use the Force. And they're like, Luke, you've turned off your targeting computer. And then, you know, he makes the shot by, you know, apparently by dumb luck. So well, by using uh, the another force. by using the force. That's right. Well, as I don't know, as Han Solo would argue, you know, he doesn't believe in the force. He just believes in luck. And I think didn't Obi-Wan say something like there is no such thing as luck. Yeah, probably. So. Um, that one, I think there's a lot of, uh, I mean, Star Wars and New Hope, there's just so much iconic scenes in there, at yeah, least in I my opinion. I think the one, beside, like I said, the, the obvious answer is the Death Star being blown up. But I think for me, the iconic scene from that first one is the first time you see Vader and he walks into that room and it's got the music and he's just so intimidating and big and just, you know, I mean... Before he, before he even talks, you're like, that's the bad guy, you know? I, let me tell you about the first time I saw that movie. Do you remember the first time you saw Star Wars? Uh, no. I was pretty young, though. I mean, it came out the year I was born, so I obviously didn't see it then. Well, I might have, but I don't remember it. I remember seeing it in a drive-in movie theater. And this was one of those theaters where, of course, you don't... I mean, drive-in movie theaters are kind of a dying breed. You don't see a lot of them, but... The one that used to be in my hometown had a playground up front and I was up there playing. So, of course, I didn't hear the audio, but I remember looking up at the screen and seeing this big towering figure dressed in black. That is my first impression of Darth Vader. And I was probably like about six years old when I saw that. So you can imagine what kind of impression that made on a six year old. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I was... I was probably about the same age. My mother actually was in the Star Wars in a, in a weird way. Cause like for the 1980 show, I remember we went to the drive in for five because my older brother would have been, um, eight years old by then. And we went and saw it because he wanted, because he wanted to see it or she wanted to see it or whatever. But, um, it was one of those things. And I saw the, I saw four after I saw five. So it was, I guess, in kind of a weird way. But even back then, I was not, I was never much of a Star Wars fan. And I'm still not, honestly. I, one exception to that is I really liked the seventh episode, the, the, the Force Awakens. Um, okay. Simply because, and not because it's Star Wars. And I, and I always have to try to make this dist- distinction. It was a really good sci-fi movie. I love sci-fi movies. 
I didn't love it because it was Star Wars. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and I mean, I know it's it's a good Star Wars. It's 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 a good movie. And again, my only complaints about this, and I've talked about it a little bit before, is that I think Episode Seven relied on too many of the same beats and characteristics as the first one did. Yeah, but but it's it's like any trilogy; they all kind of run on that same formula. So I think it's kind of hard to get away from it and still make it feel the way you want it to feel. Yeah, and I think that's just kind of really woven itself into the whole Star Wars style of storytelling where, you know, the original trilogy, it starts out kind of, you know, kind of hopeful, and then in the middle part, things get dark, and then it ends on a hopeful note, and, you know, you you saw that in the original trilogy, the prequels, and I'm sure in the next, you know, the the sequel trilogy, we'll probably see that. So I'm guessing that Episode Eight is probably going to be pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a feeling it's going to be. Well, um, are, before I move on to the 80s, are there any other movies from the 70s uh, that, you know, really stick out for you? You know, I'm looking through this list. I mean, that, that picture of The Exorcist, but I've never seen the movie, but I've seen that freeze frame, and I get why that's considered iconic. Um, but no, not really. Everything else on here is um, doesn't really stick out to me. So Jaws does for me. And the one iconic scene that I think from Jaws that gets me, they, some people call it the Jaws shot where it's when the beaches were, you know, was, was, they were trying to close the beach for 4th of July, but they decided to keep the beach open. And there's the scene where, was it Grady, the, the sheriff, where it's like, it shows him he's staying perfectly sing, um, you know, centered in the screen. And, you know, the, and it's like the background moves differently than you'd expect. And that's another thing that I think can make a shot iconic if it's not necessarily just a really good scene, but if it's really artistically done or if it's, if it's groundbreaking, if it uses a, a filming technique that hasn't really been used before. So that's another, that's probably the iconic scene in Jaws for me. Okay. Yeah. And I know they talk about Rocky in this at the training montage when he, you know, gets to the top of the stairs, but I wasn't really much for the first Rocky, but when we, as we move to the eighties, I'm going to have some stuff to say about Rocky. Uh, I think it was Rocky four, but the last movie I'd like to talk about from this decade. Yeah. Alien. They talk about the chest buster. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another one of those interesting scenes where the actors really weren't acting because they didn't, other than the guy who was going to have the the creature burst out of his chest, right? The rest of the actors didn't know what was going to happen. Oh, really? They were just told to act naturally, and then it's like, so yeah, when they're getting like guts and fake blood sp- sprayed all over them, they didn't know that was going to happen. Wow. Now i i have to I have to be honest here. I've never seen Alien or Aliens or any of the other versions of that movie so i mean i'm familiar with the chest buster um they they did it in um space balls too at the end of oh Super no Bowl. not again yeah yep exactly the one of the movies they mentioned here in the starting of the 80s the uh the lightsaber duel and darth vader's confession to luke where the i am your father so that i think for me, that is, they're right on. That is the iconic scene in 
Empire Strikes Back. Do you would you agree? I would, disagree? I would, no, I would agree with that. That is the. Let's see if we're thinking along the same page here. So, why do you think that is the iconic scene in Empire Strikes Back? I think it's like the the iconic scene for a few reasons. One, it's just a straight on shot from the shoulders up of Vader. Um, he's got, or I'm trying to remember, I can't remember if he, if Luke's got him on the ropes at this point or he has Luke on nope. the ropes. Vader has Luke's on the rope because remember his hand was cut off and he was, you know, grabbing onto dear life on that pole. Right. Okay. Yep. And it's just, it's, I think it's because nobody expected it. I mean, now exactly. it's common knowledge, but at the time nobody expected it. And then also, if you go back to episode four, that makes him a dirty sister kisser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, wasn't that in uh, in in Empire Strikes Back that he first kissed him? And then that's like when Han was like, I'd rather kiss. You know, she, oh, she said was it? Was to it? Han, I'd rather kiss a Wookiee. And Han's like, that can be arranged. Yeah, it might have been. Like I said, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I've seen them. Um, I, I haven't committed a whole lot to memory. <laughs> Okay, but yeah, and I, that's, I think you're right on, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, no one expected that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. That's another one of those scenes that at the time when everyone was filming, and I, I saw this in a Star Wars documentary, Mark Hamill was saying that Lucas and one of the other producers took him aside and they're like, okay, this is the line that David Prowse is going to say to you. But in the final edit of the movie, this is what he's really going to say. And everyone who was watching that scene being filmed, they thought that Darth Vader was going to say, Obi-Wan killed your father. Oh. But, yeah. And it's amazing that they kept it to see that secretive. So I guess that Lucas and that other producer were the only people before Mark Hamill, the only people who knew what, you know, what uh, James Earl Jones was, was going to say when he did that voiceover. Wow. That's kind of a cool story. Okay. So, so moving on uh, again, they also mention uh, chariots of fire. Now I haven't seen that movie, but the reason I recognize the slow motion Olympic runners, mm-hmm. did you see, I, I think it was like the last, the, the summer Olympics that, uh, that Britain hosted. Probably not. I tend not to watch the Olympics. I don't usually don't watch it. I just like watching the opening and ending, um, you know, ceremonies. And I've got to give the UK, I got to give you guys a big thumbs up. The closing ceremony performance was flipping amazing. And I don't know if you're familiar with Rowan Atkins, who plays Mr. Bean. Oh, yes. I love Mr. Bean. Well, they were, do- I'm sure you could probably find it on YouTube, but, okay. um, you know, the C- it starts out with that keyboard thing, like, well, they had, through the entire song, they had uh, uh, Rowan sitting there just doing that, and then he was just kind of bored. He was, like, pulling out his cell phone and looking at his cell phone, and YouTube it, it is awesome, and okay. they parodied that scene in in the closing presentation, so... Thumbs up to you, United Kingdom. That was an amazing end ceremony for the Olympics. Now, if we're still in the 80s here, um, the one that really strikes me is the movie Big from 1980-whatever with the the FAO Schwartz. You know, they dance on the piano. That is one of my – well, 
it, it's one of my favorite movies. Love Big. Um, is as much as it uh, creeps my daughter out. For some reason, it's a better Tom uh, Hanks movie than Mazes and Monsters, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my my one daughter is creeped out by the Zoltan machines because it's the one that you know gave him the fortune and made him big or whatever. And uh, we were down. It's kind of a funny story. We're down in the Wisconsin Dells, and they had a Zoltan machine and outside of one of the one of the places, you know. And I'm like, oh, this will be cool. And I walked over and I dropped my fifty cents in there. And she lost it. She was like, <laughs> you can't do that. What if this happens? You work that. I'm like, honey. I said, I even took her on back. I'm like, see, it's plugged in. It's not like it's magic, you know. <laughs> but it was it was kind of funny. Um, but the iconic scene of dancing and doing chopsticks on that uh, on that large uh, floor piano. Keyboard, yeah. I, I always thought that was really cool. Yeah, and now... Oh, yeah, they also, of course, well, I don't know, that's in the 90s, so we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, see, they mentioned, uh, oh, yeah, the Scarface, I've only seen part of it, but I think everyone remembers the final scene where, you know, he's, where uh, Tony Montana is high on cocaine, and he's, you know, these people are trying to break the, with, you know, break into his house to kill him, and he's like, you know, you know, you f- with Tony Montana, you f- with the best, you know, say hello to my little friend, and he starts spraying bullets everywhere, yeah. so... Um, of course, we also talked. We already talked about the ET with the the bicycle and the moon silhouette. Um, yeah. Another one that I I haven't seen the movie say anything, but where they have uh, was John Cusack. Yeah, you know he's holding the boombox up uh, while it's playing the Peter Peter Gabriel song. So that's another one of those ones where uh, I can see how that's iconic because it's simple, but I think it really captures them what that movie is supposed to be about. Yeah. Yeah. There's one other one in the eighties. I think we got it. We got to mention, cause if my wife ever listens to this and she realized it's on this list and I didn't say anything about it, she'd, she'd beat me up. When Harry met Sally, the simulated orgasm in the New York city deli. Have you seen that, that movie? I've seen like parts of it. I, I, it's not a movie that I've watched all the way through. Yeah, I, I have a couple times because I kind of have to. But um, that is about the only good scene in the movie, in my opinion. And it's only good because Meg Ryan is really cute. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to the 90s, and we already talked about a couple of these. The uh, uh, Kevin scream after he puts aftershave on his face. Um, another one that they mention here, the... Uh, the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. And I have to agree with that one because I think Jurassic Park was probably one of the first movies to have really convincing dinosaurs in it where, you know, yeah, in your mind, you knew it was a special effect, but it still looked pretty darn convincing. Yeah, absolutely. I, You know, the first... Well, not the first time I saw it, but the first time I took my wife to see this movie, we went and saw it um, at a place called the Grand Theater in Wausau, which is a um, it's a it's a stage acting type place. But they have a large screen, and every once in a while, back in the '90s, they would do nights where they would show movies. So it was like second run movies, and you'd go and you get the nice seats, and you know you could sit there and watch it on this huge ass screen. And we're watching it, and we were dating at the time, and she's holding my hand. And you know how when T-Rex comes on that first time, he comes flying from the 
from the left-hand side of the screen, and he just comes banging onto the screen, you know, and he's just, he does his, his, or whatever, you know. I kid you not, he comes flying onto the screen. She does a flip backwards in her chair, never lets go of my hand. <laughs> I almost got a broken wrist that night. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's how convincing it was that, um, you know, or realistic, I guess, would be a better word for it. Um, but yeah, Jurassic Park is was an amazing feat at the time. Let's see. And then we go to uh, Schindler's List. Uh, that one they mentioned the girl in the red coat amongst the black and white. So I could see that as iconic. I mean, I'm not sure what the symbolism would have been with that, but you know, showing this you know color amongst all this gray and depressing scene. Yeah, I I have not seen Schindler's List. Again, it's one of those movies that's on the got to watch this movie and just haven't gotten there. Yeah, and another one they as they end the ninth the nineties the dodging bullets and bullet time in the Matrix, and that I have to agree is iconic there because I, it wasn't something that most people. I mean, as far as special effects go, that was pretty uh, far ahead of its time. Oh, yeah, and yeah. You know, of course, nowadays the the whole bullet time gets parodied and uh, things you know, like nine ways since Saturday. Yeah, everybody does it now. But I mean, the fact that for the first time we could see a bullet not only going through the air, but we could see it slow down. We could see the the way it affected the air around it, and the fact that you know uh, Neo could slow everything down and avoid the bullet. You know, was was in two ways that's iconic one we just got to see the effect of the bullet on the immediate area around it and two we got to see that special effects where you know in the matrix he could slow everything down yeah and as i recall i was i was reading an article about uh the matrix uh shortly you know I, it was either shortly before it came out or shortly after it came out but when the i think it was her last name Warchorsky or when the Wachowski brothers, whoever they were when they made it, you know, they when they visualized that scene, the technology to create it actually hadn't been invented yet. Right. So right. I think that's another thing we can agree about it being iconic is because it falls into that category of, you know, something that was technologically ahead of its time or technologically groundbreaking. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think we're going to be drawing this episode to a close soon. So we yeah, you know, talked about... We covered 100 years. Well, before we end, though, let me back up to the 80s because there was something I was going to mention uh, that I forgot about because we were talking about Rocky with how there was the iconic scene where he goes to the top of the stairs oh, and he's yeah, raising his yeah. hand in victory. I'd have to say Rocky Four had the be- one of the better iconic scenes. Have you ever seen Rocky Four? No. I'm well, not even sure I've seen Rocky, to be honest with you. Okay. Well, Rocky IV, it was like 83 or 84. In this one, Rocky goes to the Soviet Union to box against Ivan Drago, who just killed his uh, Apollo Creed in the ring. Okay. And I'm pretty sure he killed him or he seriously injured him. But um, the So there is this training scene where they were contrasting Rocky's training methods as opposed to... Ivan's training methods. Okay. Where, um, you know, Rocky, he was go YouTube it. It's it's an it's a really good montage, and I know montages can get kind of cliche, 
but I think this one was really well done. It jumped back and forth between showing Rocky. He's training by doing things like pulling a sled and chopping wood and running up snow-covered mountains. Uh, So he was doing the low-tech training approach, whereas Ivan, he was in the lab and doing all this high scientific stuff that they were, you know, that he was using to train. Right. So it really kind of set the two characters apart. But I think it really kind of pictures where the U.S. and the Soviet Union were at this time in the Cold War, where, you know, of course, in the 80s, and we've talked about this here and there before, of course, in the 80s, the Russians were always the bad guys. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so this montage was showing, okay, we're pitting Rocky, this, you know, down to earth, uh, you know, American good guy. And, you know, he's using honest uh, training methods where you have Drago, who's, you know, he's the evil Soviet Union. And, you know, he's using every technological advantage to, uh, you know, to give him that edge. So I would, I would, you know, suggest YouTubing that if you have a chance. Okay. But... Well, as we wind down, we've talked about a lot of movie scenes, um, but if you had to choose a scene that really stands out for you as iconic from a movie we didn't talk about, what would it be? Wow. Um, God, that's, that's, that is a hard, you know, I think I'd have to go actually, it just popped into my head as I was thinking here in, um, the movie Carrie, the, uh, Sissy Spacek covered in the uh, pig's blood. Well, we know it's pig's blood now, but it was like blood um, at the uh, during the prom, you know. Um, and actually, no, I guess it was pig's blood because they played a joke on her. And of course, you know, Carrie was the fire, or not the fire starter, um, but Carrie was a. Uh, she could use her brain to to kill people and do that kind of stuff and yeah. set fires and. All this kind of, and of course, a bunch of high school students aren't going to kill enough people to fit, you know, to fill a a bucket of blood. Right. Exactly. I should hope they won't. Um, But so I think that that was a very iconic scene to me. That 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 was not on the list. Um, And mostly, it sticks in my head because the first time I saw Carrie, it scared the shit out of me. (laughs) I mean, it was a scary movie, and not because there was all kinds of murder and this and that and the next thing. It was because. It was they they played with that idea of she could do all this with her mind. So for me, I guess that's that's one of the iconic scenes that we didn't talk about. So that stuck with you because of the the effect it had on you where it just like scared the pants off of you? Yeah, partly and partly because it was it was something I had never thought of at that time in my life that people could use their brain to or their mind power to injure somebody or kill somebody. Um, just the whole concept of it all was so um, alien to me at the time that uh, it was like, you know, it just kind of stuck with me, kind of held my interest. And, um, you know, and now if you look at my bookshelf, it's covered in Stephen King. But, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, for me, I would have to say one of my all-time favorite movies is Wayne's World. I remember when we first got it on VHS – in the first like three like three or four days we had it, I watched that movie like six or seven times. I was watching it once or twice a day, <laughs> and the arco- the iconic scene for me in that one is probably the Bohemian Rhapsody segment. And I will neither confirm nor deny that my friends and I ever recreated this scene when we were kids. Um, I will 
Also, neither confirm nor deny whether Dan, my friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast, he may or may not have been involved in it at one of those times. But, um, you know the scene I'm talking about, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, where, uh, you know, the Wayne and his friends, they just got done recording their show and they're, you know, they're going off to get donuts and, you know, they're, you know, he's like, oh, let's go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody tonight. And they're singing along to the song while, you know, they're driving. And I, I think one of the scenes, reasons that scene is so iconic for me is it kind of brings you back to where you were at that time. Well, at least for us, where we were at that time, right. where, you know, we were, you know, this was when we were teenagers and, we were, though I think in the movie Wayne and Garth are actually older than teenagers, of course, but, you know, it kind of brings you back to that, that carefreeness of youth where you're just kind of hanging out with your friends and goofing off. And this is before you had to worry about things like, you know, kids and your mortgage and holding down a job. So I guess that's one of the reasons that that particular scene is so iconic for me. Okay. And for the record, I was usually Garth because I was usually the one who was driving. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that we've talked to this topic to death for now. But, Chad, if people want to find you, where can they find you? If they Uh, want to hear more of you or if they want to read some of your writings. Well, um, as far as uh, wanting to hear me, just uh, back up from where you are now and just look up and down the feed here. You'll find me. Uh, whose podcast is it anyway? That's that's the podcast that I do. Um, <clears throat> we're uh, we, we've hit a couple record or a couple uh, uh, marks, I guess. Here we uh, we've hit episode fifteen. I just recorded that um, a couple weeks ago, so we're moving along on that. Um, as far as reading my stuff right now, I I really don't have anything out there, Al. Okay. Yep. So yeah, definitely take a look at, uh, take a listen to rather. So definitely take a listen to whose podcast is it anyway, if you have the chance. So, and of course you can find uh point of insanity game studio at POIGamestudio.com. Uh, you can look us up on iTunes. You can see some of the videos I've made on YouTube. And of course, if you're on the Facebook, stop by point of insanity game studio on Facebook. Feel free to like the page, and hey, if you've got ideas for topics you'd like to see Chad and I talk about in the future, or, well, anyone really, a guest maybe I've had, like if you want to hear, you know, Dawn and I talk about something, or Dan or I talk about something, you know, hey, give us ideas for topics, and I'll be happy to consider them. So, that said, thanks for tuning in, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and... Well, of course, we didn't talk about gaming, so happy movie watching. <laughs> Actually, we did talk about gaming in the very beginning. That is true. I, You know, I, I, I just thought about that. I'm like, well, wait a second. Before we talked about iconic film scenes, we did talk a little bit about iconic gaming characters. So I guess, you, well, you should always have happy gaming, right? Absolutely. Well, good night, everybody. 